This podcast is generously supported by the Jesus Bible NIV edition. With exclusive articles from Louis Giglio, John Piper, and Randy Alcorn, the Jesus Bible lifts Jesus up as the lead story of the Bible. It is available as a full study Bible, as well as available as individual Bible journals. Find out more at www.thejesusbible.com. Want to learn how to interpret and teach the entire Bible in a way that is Christ-centered and clear? Learn with us here on the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. Welcome to the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast, where we want to have conversations about Christ and all the scriptures for every church. And on this week's episode, we prepare ourselves for our uh, look at the book of Judges. This week, we will hear actually a sermon from one of our contributors to Christ-Centered and Clear, uh, that being Jeff Hay. Jeff has been on the podcast. Jeff is actually the voice of the intro to the podcast. Jeff Hay is the senior pastor of Bally Cullen Community Church in Dublin, Ireland, and Jeff has preached through the book of Judges. He'll be joining uh, us to have this conversation about judges. Along with him uh, will also be uh, John Aiken and Matt Caps as we have conversation going all the way through all the judges and through the book. And so preparing ourselves for that uh, look here in the next couple weeks, we're going to hear from Jeff Hay and his first sermon from the book of Judges. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Deuteronomy 7, verse 1 to 3 says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Gergashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. That is what God commanded the Israelites to do, to fight about with the Canaanites, to wipe them out completely and all those other ites that lived in the land. Is God a moral monster? Richard Dawkins has said and written, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infantile, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously, Malevolent bully. We know Dawkins likes to use a thesaurus, at least. But what do we make of all that? Is God a moral monster? You've got to realize Dawkins likes to pick and choose certain aspects that he reads. And even if he doesn't believe God exists, He's being very unfair to the story of who God is and who even that his character in the whole Bible. I do believe he exists. And yet God has commanded here the Israelites to get rid of all the Canaanites. 
Christians have difficulty with this, and I can understand that. And some people think the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. But have they read the whole Bible from beginning to end? Now, first of all, we got to acknowledge a few things that Dawkins and many others don't. But before we do, let me ask you a question. If you have difficulty with this, and that's understandable, you might have difficulty because you believe God is love. Jesus loves me. Why do you believe God is love? Where's Karina? Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me. You only actually believe God is love because it's been revealed to you in the Bible. And that's been passed down somehow through that. And there's great truth in that because God's word is true. I'm convinced of that. So if we hold to God's word, we need to hold to what all of God's word says. And God is love. But what else does God reveal? about himself in the Bible. Well, firstly, we've already learned this. God is our creator, maker, owner, holy. That means he's king, he's in charge. God is, secondly, the giver of life. You're only breathing right now because God made you and is sustaining you. In fact, those two truths are enough to put that question to the side. How can God wipe out the Canaanites? Well, he was the one who made them and gave life to them anyway. But there's more that the text and the whole Bible reveals also that all of us are sinful. Humans are sinful and all of us deserve God's justice. The problem is we don't think we do. We think we're good. Even though the Bible says the wages of sin is death. How may we think, no, I don't deserve that. It would be just of just of God to wipe us out. But text reveals more. We do know that God is loving and gracious and compassionate. So why the Canaanites? Why the people of this man? Well, it is, it is important to realize that the Canaanites were wicked, grossly wicked. They did detestable things, even things like child sacrifice. Deuteronomy 18, verse 9 says, When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, and it goes on and on and on. So God was bringing justice on wickedness. It wasn't because of their ethnicity, because other nations are judged too, and actually Israel gets judged because of their wickedness. Dawkins has got it all wrong if he's saying he's a... This is genocidal and due to ethnicity. Fifthly, God, God had a plan for Israel to be in this land, to be pure and holy, so that other nations would come and look in and see how great God was. So this was a special, unique time, never to be repeated again. There's no way it's ever right for anyone to ever say, well, I'm doing some violence in the name of Jesus. 
And just because some things are described in the Bible doesn't mean it's prescribed for us to do. Lots of people get that wrong. It's telling us maybe what's happened, but it's not telling us go do likewise. Also, sixthly, we know that even though there was destruction, for those who repented, they were spared. Rahab as an example of that. And finally, what we read here in the Old Testament is actually a prefiguring, in one sense, of the judgment the God of the New Testament will judge. It's the same God who's unchanging. In fact, the language and description of judgment in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, I would say it's even worse. So we often have difficulty with these passages because we maybe don't know God well enough. We maybe think too highly of ourselves. And we should actually be turning the question around instead of asking, why would God wipe out this wicked people? We should really be asking, why does God allow any rebellious people to survive? This podcast is generously supported by the Jesus Bible NIV edition. Zondervan Bibles has partnered with the Passion Movement to bring you an accessible study Bible with features designed to help you meet Jesus throughout the scripture. With over 1,000 articles and essays written by contributors like Louis Giglio, John Piper, and Randy Alcorn, this study Bible is written so that you may know him more intimately, love him more passionately, and walk with him more faithfully. The full Jesus Bible has been changing lives since 2017. And now select books of the Jesus Bible are available as individual Bible journals. The handy size and ample space for taking notes make these Bible journals an ideal one for group study or personal devotions. Chronicle your own journey of faith as you discover Jesus as the lead story of the Bible in five Old Testament books and nine New Testament books. There was never a moment before him. There will never be a moment without him. There is no BC. Find out more at thejesusbible.com. If we're not asking that question, we haven't understood the God of the Bible. Yes, he's loving, but he's just. Why does God allow us to live and give us everything when we're so rebellious? Well, that's a bit of an introduction to some of the difficulties here. But as we come to the book of the Judges, let's just think where we are in the story of the Bible. Israel has been rescued from Egypt through Moses, and then Joshua took charge. And the book of Joshua before this was really going into the land, taking the land. And now we're into the book of Judges, and it's about possessing the land. And there's still many nations there. And we know that they've been commanded to totally destroy the other nation. And when we come to Judges 1, we might think, is Judges 1 just a bit of a geography lesson here and here? Or is there more going on here? Well, let me start by mentioning the good things. Excuse me, the good things. Verse 1. Look at some of the good things. It begins at after the death of Joshua. The Israelites asked to the Lord. That's actually a good thing. The leader is gone, but they're going to the Lord. God. What are we to do? Who will be the first to go up and fight against the Canaanites? And the Lord answered, Judah is to go, because I've given the land into their hand. And then in verse 3, we see Judah asks Simeon for help. 
And just quickly going through these verses, in verse 4, we see Judah and Simeon have military success. So in verse 4, Judah attacked. The Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands. They struck down 10,000 men. And it was there they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him. And he fled, this guy, but they chased him and they cut off his thumbs and toes. Verse 7, though, is interesting. Then Adonai Bezek himself said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. Even this guy recognizes the justice of God. He's getting done to him what he did to others. Justice. We also see continued success of Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 8, a few more successes. Verses 9 and 10. Verses 11 to 14, we see them defeat Deber, Kiriath, Sipher, and Caleb was the guy who we know about, and, and he rewarded Othniel, who we'll learn about later on. That's why he's introduced here too with his daughter in marriage for defeating them. And this is a good rewarding story. And she goes, give me a land. And, and is a good example. And then in verse 16, we see Kenites, outsiders, come in and were part of the people of God. And in verse 17 and 18, we see Judah and Simeon also destroyed a few more and had victory. So much that at verse 19, important verse, the first line of it, the conclusion is the Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country. Great. If it ended there, you'd, go, you'd sort of go, this is good in some ways. Because the Lord was with them. And they did what it seems the Lord wanted them to do. But, there's a big but in verse 19. But, they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. What's gone wrong? What were they to do? They were to wipe out them all. Why weren't they able? Well, maybe they weren't quite as obedient as we think. Because even back in verse 1, when they inquired of the Lord, who is to first go up and fight? What was the Lord's answer? Who was to go up? Judah. Keep with me. Just see your way. And who did go up? Judah and Simeon. Now, was that fully obedient? Well, they might have been thinking, this is good, wise military planning. But God had said, Judah, who used to go up first? Judah, you're to go up first. And Judah are probably thinking, oh, well, maybe I'm not fully trusting the Lord. I need help. You know, he's told me, I've given them into your hands. This is already displaying a lack of trust, not full obedience. They were faithful, but they compromised and were flawed a bit. And I think that's the point down in verse 19 when it says they were unable to drive out the people because they had iron chariots. Now, that shows that they've stopped trusting in God because iron chariots are no opposition to God. But they were measuring their own strength against their enemies. They weren't trusting God unless they failed. And ultimately what we'll see in the rest of the chapter is a failure to obey wholeheartedly. A failure to obey wholeheartedly. 
They were told to remove the other nations. And even verse 19, it says, Judah failed to drive out the people. And now scan down verse 21. The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites who were living in it. And that meant the Jebusites lived with the Benjamites. Verses 22 to 26, we see the house of Joseph make a treaty with one of these foreign or people in that Canaanite people and make an agreement with them. And they were told not to do that. They weren't trusting God. They were failing to obey wholeheartedly. Verse 27. But Manasseh either did not drive out the people of Beth Shan. They didn't drive out. It was half-hearted obedience. Verse 28. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor. That's not wiping them out. They never drove them out completely. Not wholehearted obedience. Verse 29 to 31, look at what happened. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gaza, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Sebulun drive out the Canaanites, <clears throat> but they subject them to force later. The Canaanites are living amongst them. And it actually got worse. Verse 31, nor did Asher drive out those living in those places. And because of this, the people of Asher lived among the Canaanites inhabitants of the land. Neither did Naphtali drive them out either. And not only does Asher and Naphtali not drive them out, but instead of the text saying, and the Canaanites lived amongst them, it says that these tribes lived amongst the Canaanites. It's almost as if the Canaanites have the upper hand. Until we come to Dan, and they're even confined to a certain place. The Amorites confined the Danites, that's the tribe of Israel, to the hill country. They weren't even allowed to come down into the plain Amorites of the upper hand. They were determined also to hold on to these places. And it talks in verse 36 about the boundary of the Amorites. Not the Israelites. So what's happened? There's a huge downward spiral here in even how they were taking the land. First, Judah didn't properly get rid of them all. And it meant the Canaanites lived at a bit of a distance from them. Then the Canaanites in verses 27 to 30 are allowed to live amongst the Israelites. Then the Israelites, it says, are living amongst the Canaanites. They have the upper hand until right at the very end. The Israelites are only allowed to live at a, at a distance from the Amorites. They didn't wipe them out. And these other nations are living amongst them. Why was that bad? Because God had them earlier to wipe them out because if they remain they will cause you to sin against me this podcast is sponsored by the pillar network if you're the pastor of a revitalization or a replant seeking to lead your church towards healthy baptist ecclesiology you should consider the pillar network learn more about their dna and what partnership looks like by visiting thepillarnetwork.com again thepillarnetwork.com Are we being a bit harsh on the Israelites? Well, what is God's assessment of it all? From the angel of the Lord, look at chapter 2. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have this obeyed me. Why have you done this? Now therefore I tell you that I will not drive them out before you 
They will be thorns in your side, and their gods will be a snare to you. There'll be thorns in their sides. Their gods will be a snare. The fact that these nations worshipped other gods was going to lead to disaster. And it could have been helped. How? If they had only wholeheartedly obeyed. But they compromised with God's work. Why is that so bad? Well, see, leaving the people in the land would be like a spiritual cancer. Imagine a surgeon performing surgery on someone who has cancer and decides, yeah, I'll, I'll just remove part of it, but I'll leave the other bit in there. Even though I could get rid of it, I'll just leave it there. We'd instinctively go, no, don't do that. Otherwise, it'll come back and affect us and eat away. If you have opportunity to get rid of the cancer, get rid of it. And that's what God wanted done here. Because he wanted the nation and the land to be holy and pure. And they were to eliminate the Canaanites and the other wicked. This is not to be repeated by us. This is what God commanded back then. Because if they left them there not long, what would happen? Well, they would mingle, they would intermarry, they would kiss covenant faithfulness goodbye and they would get into bed with the other gods. And the rest of the book is pretty clear that that's exactly what they did. Why? Because they failed to wholeheartedly obey. It was half-hearted obedience. Oh, they went up and fought, but they didn't go and obey God fully. Israelites are told that they're an example to us in the New Testament. Do you think we are ever guilty of half-hearted obedience? I think the teaching from this is clear. God wants lordship over every area of our lives. He doesn't want compromise. He doesn't want half-heartedness. He wants us living for God alone, not other idols. Ultimately, with God, it's all or nothing. And that's for our good. The consequence of a half-hearted obedience, yeah, I'll take some of God's commands and I'll leave some of the others, will be thorns and destruction. So in what ways do we not wholeheartedly obey? Am I half-hearted? What about our devotion to God, even our relationship with God? We were looking at that in one sense last week, being delighting in his word, getting to know him. How is our devotion to the one true God compared to our devotion to the gods of comfort? You know, we all have to work and different things, but what do we do in our spare time? Do we develop our love for God, delight in his word, or do we delight in TV boxing? in entertainment, or in spending time with God. What else? What about service? How's our devotion to that? It's wonderful to see people serving in church and great, like we heard from Rumbi. Yet sometimes we struggle to get help. Is it because only a few people are doing the work? Does that reveal half-heartedness? 
What about our commitment to evangelism? Now, this is something I struggle with. Why don't we take risks? We see even other religions give everything for their cause, and they don't have the truth. They don't have the Holy Spirit working in them, but they're wholly devoted. And we are and struggle to do that. And wholehearted obedience is what's best for us. And it was best for them here, but they failed, and it meant the other idol and nations influenced them. And we do to see it. And we may think, oh, those things would be great, but ultimately they'll bring pain and destruction. If we're living for gods of this age, gods of pleasure, relationships, sex, we bow down to those idols, and what happens? They ensnare us. They capture our thoughts, they, our hearts, and you can end up becoming addicted to it. And it only brings ruin. Because, like here, they weren't radical enough to fully obey God's word. Where does the inference that we know the Bible says, flee from sexual immorality. Let there not be even a hint of it amongst you. And instead of thinking, I'm going to radically obey that. Well, we're half-hearted and we convince ourselves, ah, sure, this is all right. I'll see how, how, how far I can go and I'll not be quite so radical and I'll open up myself to temptation. And what happens? Well, our deceitful hearts take over. And before we know it, we'll fully embrace the idol of relationships and sex and it just leads to ruin and hurt. And it drags us down. And they have other commands. What about the command to forgive always and bless and pray for those who persecute you? Oh, we might go, oh, that person has hurt me. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll forgive. What does that look like? Oh, that means I'll just not really speak to them and avoid them. Uh, you know, I'm not holding it against them, really. I'm just not. That's not forgiveness. That's half-hearted. Full forgiveness is able to forgive and then want them to be blessed. I'm praying for them and for their good. Do we want those who hurt us to be blessed and to prosper? We don't have we fully forgive. Because we don't realize that holding on to this and holding on to things like disobedience leads to bitterness and pain. And as we see here, as the book of Judges will progress, this failure at the beginning leads to plenty of disaster later on, even if it's not immediate. If only they'd realize that obedience here would have led to so much less chaos. And that can be the same with us. We're half-hearted here, and we don't realize how the effects will lead further on down the line. Maybe even in relationship, we think, oh yeah, I'll just go out on a date with this person who's not maybe a follower of Jesus, and they'll be fine. No immediate harm, but then down the line, uh-oh, get sucked in, he and hurt, and eventually drifting away. Or even I'll just spend a little bit more time at home. I'll, I'll not commit to the connect groups or Bible studies or miss a bit of church. I'll stay in bed, bed and relax a bit. That's half-heartedness. 
otherwise described by God as disobedient, sin. And sooner or later, we're bowing down to the God of comfort. Living for this age, disobedience, and ultimately it won't satisfy. And we won't be the blessed person that we read about in Psalm 1. And we may even end up falling away or proving that we never truly belong. And it happens gradually over time. Are we wholehearted or half-hearted? And I haven't even mentioned money. I'm challenged about this. Sixty years ago on Friday was the anniversary of the five men who were martyred by the Aka Indians. Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and those five men that went out wholehearted obedience to you for the Lord. They gave everything and they lost their lives. But Jim Elliott was the guy who wrote the famous quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He knew it's wise. You're a fool. If you don't give everything to the Lord because of what will be gained in eternity that will never be lost. Let's examine ourselves. God wants us all wholehearted obedience. What area in your life and mine, am I not wholeheartedly obeying God? But why? Why should we wholeheartedly obey? Well, chapter 2, verse 1 is quite unusual because it says, The angel of the Lord appears. Angel of the Lord, Lord's representative, or the Lord himself. But that's not the point that's interesting. The interesting bit is to say something I think is quite strange. The angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal. Why would you mention that? Why mention the angel of the Lord coming from Gilgal? Surely the angel of the Lord doesn't live in Gilgal, the Lord himself. What's the significance? Why that's in the text? Well, the place Gilgal comes up and is named in Joshua 5. It was in Gilgal, Joshua 5, that the people made a covenant with God. It was in Gilgal where they, after entering the land, they celebrated the Passover. They remembered the rescue from Egypt and they made a covenant and an agreement with God. In Joshua chapter 5, verse 9, it says, Today I have ruled away. Ruled away means Gilgal. Today I've ruled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So this place, Gilgal, is a place where they are reminded and celebrated that they were rescued and freed from the Egyptians. That they're a rescued, forgiven people and have been brought into a relationship with God by grace because of his loving kindness. And when the angel of the Lord comes from Gilgal, it's a reminder to the Israelites that they are a people who have been saved and rescued by grace. And the shock is that you rescued people have disobeyed your rescuer. That's why the angel from Gilgal says in verse 1, I brought you up out of Egypt. 
and led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. God's saying, I've rescued you. I've entered into these promises with you. But there's a problem. Verse 2, you have disobeyed me. You have broken your side of things. So God's in a difficult position. I've graciously rescued you and entered into a covenant with you, sworn to bless you as my people, but now you're being disobedient. So how can I bless you? What's God to do? God is holy and just and can't tolerate evil, yet God is faithful and loving to his promises. So how can this holy, just God, who deserves to wipe out the Israelites because of their sin, be faithful to his promises to hold and to have a people for himself? Will God give up on his people? Because they've broken their side? But what about the promises that God has made? How can the tension be sorted? How can they be in relationship with God, yet continually disobey Him? How? The tension is only resolved thousands of years later at the cross. It's only because of the cross of Christ that God can be holy and punish our unfaithfulness and yet still be in a relationship with us. Because on the cross, our sin was put on him, imputed to Christ, and God in his justice poured out his wrath on him. So his justice and holiness against sin was satisfied, and yet because of Jesus at the same time, his loving promises, even to these people, could be kept. And it's this glorious gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, that we're rescued by grace and been brought into a relationship with him, that is to motivate us to wholeheartedly serve. And we must not forget. And if you haven't trusted in Jesus and his saving work and said, and I want to serve you wholeheartedly, well, you're not rescued. And can I urge you to embrace that today? Because it's only because of the cross that we are able to live forgiven, obedient lives, despite being sinful. And like I asked at the start, the question we should ask, why does God allow us to live and not wipe us out immediately? Ultimately, the answer to that is only because of Jesus. Only because he came and took our place and laid down his life and was ultimately wiped out on the cross in our place, instead of us, and took the judgment. And we need to remember him to wholeheartedly obey. Just like the angel of the Lord says, I brought you up out of Egypt. I rescued you. And God is saying to us, I've rescued you by grace. You're mine. You're forgiven. You're accepted because of Jesus. And because of that, you're free to wholeheartedly serve and live for me. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. May God give us the grace to remember who he is and what he has done so that we will wholeheartedly serve him.
Thank you for listening to the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. If you have questions or topics or text you would like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at ChristCenteredAndClear at gmail.com and please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources. Thank you.